This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Would you take your Bibles? Join me again, please, in the second psalm. I want to pick up with the truth that we were considering together this morning. The church is facing open opposition today from a world set on casting God away. Again, you can believe whatever today, and it seems to be tolerated unless you believe the Bible. Stand with the Lord. And so, as we looked at this psalm, there are a number of questions that are answered. Why? Why are people so hateful? Why do they despise our Lord and His anointed? Why do the heathen rage? Verse 1. And the people, the peoples, imagine a vain thing. We know that when God cast Satan out of heaven, we know that this became enemy territory. He is, in fact, the God of this world who is blinding the minds of them that believe not. Okay, but why do they imagine a vain thing? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together? Well, we're told why the heathen rage. It's not because they have been wronged by God. They rage against the Lord and His anointed because they do not want His authority over them. And of course, that's the history of civilization, mankind. I think you would agree with me that that is pretty much the history of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Think of the blessings that were given to them. And yet their history is one of rebellion against the Lord. He sends them into captivity and then graciously brings them back to the land. But by the time our Savior is born in Bethlehem, they're back in spiritual blindness. Very few are looking for His coming. Very few embrace His coming. And even then... The kings imagine a vain thing. There is open assault against him. As I was away, one of the pastors, I think it was Pastor Brown, uh, took our minds to Bethlehem. Can you imagine a king sending soldiers to a little village to destroy babies? Well, what, what would cause him to do it? It's this hate. This rage, setting himself against the Lord. But we looked in the context that this also was speaking about David. Uh, I love what we learn about David, and we're going to be reminded later on in the text that our thoughts are going to be taken back to him. But when David receives the throne in Jerusalem, at the word of the Lord, he is the Lord's anointed. He's not Messiah, uh, but he is the Lord's anointed king. And 
when he's there during his reign, remember, the Lord comes to him. He, David wants to build a house for God. Nathan, the prophet, encourages him to do it. But at night, God comes to Nathan and says, wait a minute. That's in the Greek. No, it's, it's not. All right. Or the Hebrew. Uh, I haven't asked for anybody to build me a house. I don't need a house. But go back to David, tell him that I'm going to build him a house. Not a physical dwelling, but I am going through him to bring about Messiah. Through him, I'm going to bring a deliverer. And David, of course, rejoiced. You can read what David said back to the Lord as he sits uh, in the entrance there to the tabernacle and rejoices at God's uh, graciousness to him. But this morning we saw the link between Psalm 2 and Acts chapter 4, where we see this messianic connection when the apostles are brought before the council, they're charged, don't preach in this name. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 4 that they proclaim that there's only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. When they're threatened twice and then released, they go back to the brethren, they go back to the church. And as they rejoice together, they reflect back on Psalm 2, or, uh, uh, yes, Psalm 2, and in their reflection, they mention that what they had just experienced is, in fact, the fulfillment of that psalm. They let us know David is the author, and then they let us know uh, that what happened with Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Now, as we move forward tonight, we have the question answered, why the heathen rage? This morning we also looked at what God thinks about their rage. Look at verse 4. He that sits in the heavens, enthroned, untouchable, all-powerful, he shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. We looked at the meaning of that. What does God think about their rage? It's foolish. It's no threat to heaven. I gave you an illustration uh, that I hoped help, helped us to understand it this morning. Uh, has God ever looked on the earth and been anxious or fearful that somehow his plan is in jeopardy? Never once. Never once. He's God. He's sovereign. He's almighty. He's providence. So what is God doing regardless of man's rage. Well, our God is watching, he's laughing with scorn, he's frustrating the futile efforts uh, of those who are against him. The psalmist says that he will vex them. It's a Hebrew word that means to agitate, to trouble. The psalmist prayed to the Lord in Psalm 83, verse 15, so persecute them with thy tempest and make them afraid with thy storm. The Lord is able to pursue his enemies with storms, make them afraid, and frustrate their plans. That's what he's doing. 
And I observed this morning, I believe it's true, one of the reasons they're so hateful is because their plan doesn't work. They're frustrated. By the way, one of the things that also frustrates them, listen, is their sin will be exposed. We have a government right now where there are a lot of things, a lot of lies and, and illegal things that are happening, and those who should be upholding the law are hiding what is happening. But here's what our God says, I'm able to make those things be shouted from the rooftop. So once again, we can take comfort. God in heaven is, oh no, they're hiding it. Sometimes we think that. Have you ever thought they're getting away with it? No, they're not. Be sure your sin will find you out. All right. So what is God doing regardless of their age? Look at verse 6 now in the psalm. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now there is a lot there. Yet, in spite of all this, I have set. Now that's a Hebrew word which means to firmly place. But the etymology of the Hebrew word means to cast in a mold. Uh, there are a lot of illustrations of this where someone will make a, a mold and will pour iron into that mold and once that sets, you're not going to change it. That, that instrument, that tool, that weapon, it's, it's there, it's firm. You're not going to change what is there. Uh, maybe a helpful example for us, uh, those who work with concrete know you make molds. You set boundaries, fill that thing with concrete, and it's intended to stay. It's hard to move it. That's the same idea, to cast a mold, to firmly place. God says, yet in spite of what these folks who are opposing me are doing, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. So, he's declaring what God has said. And when God says something, he, he doesn't have to do action. He can speak and that can be the action, right? In the beginning, God created. How did he do it? He spoke. There it was. God decreed that there would be a king to sit on the throne of Israel. It wasn't Saul. It was David. And of course, from David would come Messiah. These verses point to Messiah. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Again, in the original context, think of the opposition and outright hate that David faced. He's anointed to be king. Samuel does it secretly. Why? He's afraid of Saul. When David now is heir apparent to the throne, David's youth is spent hiding in caves. As a young man, uh, he has to flee for his life. What hatred. Uh, again, what hatred, though, he had served faithfully the king. He had been a deliverer of the people of Israel. Our minds go to Goliath, right? Yet God had decreed 
and God raised up David to be king. With Messiah in view, New Testament writers, again, give us the full meaning of this text. Take your Bibles and let's go back to Acts. Go to Acts chapter 13. Listen to what Paul preached in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, Acts chapter 13. Look, please, at verse 29. So he's in the synagogue, he's preaching. Here's what he says. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of them, they took him down from the tree, obviously speaking of our Savior, and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he had seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. As it is written, I'm sorry, who are the witnesses unto the people? And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. Now here it is. As it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Original context, David. Future context, all pointing to Messiah, a direct reference to, to this wonderful psalm. So the cross raising Jesus from the dead, this was all part of God's plan. Though it was done at the hands of people and their leaders who were full of hateful rage. You're in Acts. Go with me to Hebrews. Once again, in Hebrews, there are two references to what we have seen back in the Psalms and in Acts. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 5. Hebrews 1, verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Go over to chapter 5 of Hebrews. Notice verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So what are all these references? These references that are actually quoting the second psalm. What that's speaking of is our Lord's resurrection. So the hostility of sinners against him, the hate that ultimately took him to the cross, though that was God's plan and he willfully submitted to his father's plan. What we find here in the psalm is a reference to the Father, Jehovah, God, raising Jesus from the dead. And so when you see that in this psalm, uh, this reference uh, in verse 7, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. It's a reference to his resurrection. The hostility led to his death. But he is so powerful, he rose from the grave. His father, Jehovah, 
so powerful, he raised his son from the dead. Now God has given him a name that is above every name. And this is where our text picks up, again, back in the second song. So what does God say to his Messiah? What does Jehovah say to his Messiah? Verse 8, ask of me, and I shall give thee the inheritance, uh, the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now let's stop. As you look at verse 8, that's a promise. Not that God would allow the Son to destroy man. What he is saying is for a possession, those who have hated you and opposed you, those who put you on the cross, they're going to believe on you. And they're going to become your possession throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. Your inheritance. Isn't that remarkable? Consider that word heathen again. Why do the heathen rage? Okay, why, why is there this senseless hate? And we're told why. They don't want the Lord to be in control of them. They don't want to worship Him as God. But the reality is later on, through the work of Christ and the Father raising Him, because of that salvation work, the very heathen who were so hateful are now believing on Him and becoming His precious possession. This takes my mind to Saul of Tarsus. Why did he wreak such havoc on the church? He hated the people of the way. And I think someday in glory he'll, he'll say to us, uh, before I was saved, I hated the name Jesus. But then he met him one day on the road to Damascus. Did the Lord need to meet him? No, he could have let Saul self-destruct. And what does he say to Saul? You are continuing to kick against the goad. Now this farm boy knows, Pastor Coles knows, uh, sometimes you need a sharp stick to poke a cow in the back and to get them to go where they're supposed to go. That Or another animal. That's the point. The Lord was working. He was drawing Saul. But Saul hated the name Jesus. And he kept kicking it away. I don't want to believe. I don't believe. And yet, what did Jesus do? Saul, you've got an appointment with me. And on the road to Damascus, God broke him. And made this oppressor a faithful missionary. Now, is God able to do that? Verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. For those who will not believe, what is God able to do? He's able to destroy. Perhaps you saw on the news recently that there was a representative from the Iranian government who was standing up. It was a public uh, news conference, and he was speaking out against Israel. Any of you see this on the news? He had a heart attack in front of everybody and dropped dead. Now, 
Aren't you thankful God doesn't deal with all rebellion that way? Somebody else will be preaching tonight. Okay. But those are reminders where the Lord says, nothing is too great for me, and you are no threat to me. But those of us who oppose, the reality is God is even able to take that, break that, and make us his own. Now, obviously, as we end this psalm, verse 9 is also a reminder, Jesus came the first time to seek and to save that which was lost. When he comes back in the clouds and he takes the church away, he is going to deal with this earth with a rod of iron. When we get to Revelation and seals are open, John, John, there's no one able to open the seals to this book. And then the Lamb of God steps forward. He's worthy. And when he starts to break those seals, those judgments lead to more judgments, and lead, which lead to more judgments. Who's pouring out that judgment on the earth? The Son. The one who's been despised, mocked, ridiculed, but the one who still came to give his life a ransom for many. So what God's opponents must do? With all that in mind, what must the opponents of Jehovah and Messiah do? And this brings us to verse 10. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed. That word means be warned. Be warned, ye judges of the earth. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now this is a progression in verse 11. If you'll submit and serve the Lord, that word Lord again, Jehovah, if you'll submit to Him, fear Him, reverence Him, then you'll be able to rejoice with trembling. But you'll do so being reminded, you know, I don't deserve His deliverance. I don't deserve his mercy. And yet, he gives me the privilege of serving him. What a gracious, wonderful God. Now, verse 11 is speaking of total reverence. And that's the only right and reasonable response in light of who God is. Now remember at the beginning of the psalm, these riotous, rebellious haters are saying, let us cast off their, their fetters. There. Who are they talking about? Well, the psalm tells us. The Lord Jehovah and His anointed. Messiah. Messiah. So when we get to verses 10 to 12, both are singled out. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Now look at verse 12. What about Messiah who's been opposed? Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Who's the son? Son of God, Jesus. What does it mean to kiss him? Now you can look back in history, and it is still practiced in some places today, but if you were showing reverence to a king, a monarch. If you had been defeated by such a king, one of the ways that you uh, wanted to receive mercy and could receive mercy is before that conquering king, even if you're a monarch yourself, 
you would bow in total humility and homage before that monarch. And many times they would reach out the hand with that signet ring and you'd either kiss the hand or you'd kiss the ring. So that's the idea here. Kiss the son, show homage to the son. In context, this is the son promised to King David, who we know now is Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Kiss him lest he be angry and ye perish in the way. Now, he is not inferior to Jehovah. He is God the Son. How powerful is he when his wrath is kindled but a little? All right, he's God. And if he chooses to act in judgment, watch out. What does that look like? Well, read the book of Revelation. That's what it looked like. It looks like. These rebels against God, uh, we find them hiding in the hills and the caves and they're crying out for the, the, the mountains to fall on them. Why? And in those passages in Revelation, you have direct reference to because they fear the Son. But instead of believing on Him, now they know He is judge. How does the psalm end? It ends with grace. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Sent by the Father, died for sin, and raised by the Father. But full of grace and what? Fruit. He will not deny Himself. He will not deny His Word. His Word stands forever. But where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. And with our Savior, you have truth. He's got to deal with sin. But as he deals with sin, there is also grace. So these uh, last words of the psalm talk about perishing. It talks about wrath. But then we have this statement. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That word blessed takes us back to the first psalm. Oh, how happy is the man. Blessed is the man. It walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Right? Instead of wanting to cast God off, they embrace who He is, what He has said. In His law they meditate day and night. Blessed is the man. Oh, how happy. He also prospers in all that He does. So with that in mind, blessed, look at how the verse ends, are all they that put their trust in Him. I made some comments as we started the service tonight. There are so many things in Psalm 2 that remind me of what I was before I was saved, and they remind me of what I would be now if I had not been saved. But I'm so thankful that I have been blessed of the Lord. He saved me. He drew me to Himself. He saved me. My salvation is all of Him because I was a rebel lost in sin. No spiritual life. 
But I'm thankful that the end of that verse now applies to me and any of us who have put our trust in Christ. When you trust Him, everything changes. So when we experience the hatred of unbelievers against our Lord, when we see it against His Messiah, when their only mention of His name is as a cuss word, remember this psalm. Look to heaven and say to your Lord, Behold their threatenings. And Lord, give me boldness to declare your mighty works to bring salvation to men. Your gospel to those who need to hear. And remember this, your God reigns in heaven with the Son. And it doesn't matter how hateful things get on this earth. Our Lord has already proved that He can simply send a flood and wipe it out. But even in His grace, He's put a rainbow in the sky and said, I'm not going to do that again. What does man do? They take the rainbow and they make it to say something that is vile. And yet that rainbow still stands for mercy. But he will not always strive with the souls of men. Judgment is coming. Our God reigns in heaven with his Son. His word, in fact, the words of Psalm 2 represent his plan and it cannot fail. And so tonight as we close out our look at this psalm, we come to the table of the Lord. In coming to the table of the Lord, we're reminded that God said, come. He said, our Savior said, come to my table. Remember my deliverance. And we need to give him praise tonight because ultimately, Psalm 2 doesn't apply to us. Think about it. There are parts of it, the last verse. Blessed are they that put their trust in Him. But I'm so thankful that what we read in Psalm 2 doesn't apply to believers. It applies to those who resist the goodness of God. And so at the table tonight, we need to give thanks. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father, we're so thankful for this second psalm. Lord, we know your power in raising up David to be king, though he was public enemy number one in his day before he assumed the throne. But he was a good king. He was a shepherd. Many years later, the good shepherd would be born the God-man in Bethlehem. And Lord, we know that he was opposed even as a child, hunted. And then when he became, uh, or he started his public ministry, he was opposed, hated, though he did so much good and declared the words of eternal life. Father, thank you that you have taken those of us that were estranged from God. You've reconciled us to yourself through your Son. And Lord, would you help us now as we look to a new year, 
where evil men, seducers, will wax worse and worse. Thank you that we can look to heaven with full assurance. Ask you to behold their threatenings. Remember Psalm 2. And then ask for your boldness. Help us to be faithful, bold witnesses of the gospel. And Lord, tonight, what a way to finish our time together by coming to your table and giving you thanks for the gift of salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Christ, Lord, there is a fearful looking to of judgment for those that reject you. Help them to come to you tonight. Uh, Lord, help them to be saved this evening. It's not too late. But the time is coming when it will be. And Lord, as delivered sinners, help us to ever be grateful for what you have done for us. And Father, uh, would you help us to declare that good news to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.